if you know anything of a family, you know that a family is made for intimacy. And obviously, the marriage relationship is to be an intimate relationship where we know each other and where we're known. And I want to exhort you at the beginning of our worship this week that the church also is supposed to be a family of intimacy. And when we gather, uh, we have a rule. We don't often follow it, but we have a rule that the elders and deacons are not to spend time on Sunday morning doing detailed work of the church, but rather to spend time loving you. And so I encourage you this morning, if you don't feel loved, would you let us know? <laughs> I, I went back because my glasses were driving me crazy, and I knew I couldn't preach with so many smudges. And as I was in the back, I heard the children, one little one in particular, screaming in the nursery. So I popped my head in and asked uh, whether they were having fun yet. Well, if you think about that little baby, that little baby was letting them know that it didn't feel loved yet. And we take it for granted that little babies do that, and really it's selfishness, and as they get older, they'll learn not to do it. But the truth is that uh, many of you don't let us know when you have needs when you should. Now, if you start screaming in the middle of a worship service, I suppose that's better than nothing, you know, but... Um, would you please let us know, though, when you have prayer needs, don't allow your timidity or your feeling that it would be proud for you to come forward to keep you from coming forward for prayer. Uh, if you're discouraged, don't allow your pride to keep you from letting someone know that. If they ask you how you are, uh, don't just say, all right. Say, well, I could use encouragement. And uh, if you're struggling with a sin, let us know that so that we can love you. The church should not be the one family that's completely lacking in love and intimacy for each other. Um, I remember my, uh, my buddy, the father of my son Joseph's wife, Joel Stavnes, talking about the brotherhood of the union. And I always thought about the church and thought, you know, it would be perverse if you'd hear all these union men talking about, he's my brother, you know, and yet in the church you had nothing similar to it. So let me encourage you, after the service, if you saw somebody who's sitting next to you having their name in the bulletin for a need, uh, don't avoid it. Talk to them about it. Talk to them if they have loved ones that they're caring for. Lawrence and Janet can use encouragement uh, as they care for Leah. Do you know what's happened to Leah in the last two weeks? Do you care? And they're sitting right up front here if you want to know who Lawrence and Janet are. Um, anyhow, love one another, and if you're new, don't wait. That's one of the beauties of the body of Christ is black, white, red, yellow, old, young. Uh, we are able to love each other immediately because we've received the love of Jesus Christ. Now, we're studying the book of Galatians, and I ask you to turn again there with me to the Galatians chapter 3. I, I, I almost promise you that this is the last week we'll spend on this text. I think this is the last week. I think I can. I think I can. And this week, it's verses 19 to 24. Let's read the Word of God. And the Word of God is what? It's eternally true. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Who's the mediator? No. 
Moses. All right? Through the agency of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, we've pointed out a number of times something that's obvious, but we'll say it again this week. Our text begins with the question, why the law then? Why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? What utility does the law have? How's the law to be used? Why the law then? And the question is immediately answered by the Apostle Paul, who writes in verse 19b, it was added because of transgressions. So the law was added to the promise in order that man might become aware of the infinite gap between himself and his Creator, between sinful man and the holy God who made him. Now, if you're not a believer and you've come this morning and you've wondered... Uh, What is all this about? The Christian faith is a faith of the desperate and the dead. Those who have come face to face with a holy God and who know there is no hope for them. And so when you come into church, there's a mood and a tone that prevails that is not usual in this world. And it's a tone of soberness. It's not partying. It's not cheap uh, sex, it's not uh, the laughter of drunkenness, and it's not even the frivolity of the cosmetic counter of the department store. It it is serious business. Um, It doesn't mean there isn't joy, it doesn't mean there isn't laughter, it doesn't mean that there isn't affection and tenderness, but we are people who have, have been killed, and we come here dead in our trespasses and sins. We come here having despaired of self-love and putting our hope solely in Jesus Christ. And it is because we have come to this place having been under the schoolmarm of the law, having been under the tutor of the law, having been put in the custody of the law. And the law has done its job, and its job is to what? The law's job is to kill us dead, deader than a doornail. It is to kill us. Now, I want to say at the beginning, we're going to meander a little bit. We always do. But we're going to come back to the question at the end. Do you love the ministry of the law? If the Apostle Paul were saying here the law has no purpose, there would be an easy way to say it. When he says, why then the law? He would say, well, it doesn't matter anymore. He would say it now has no purpose. He would say, well, the law is done, done with. The law is a zip, a zero. The law has no place anymore. He could have said that clearly, but he doesn't say that. He uses negative language, but the negative language indicates that the law still has a central purpose in our lives and in the scheme of God to provide salvation. All right? 
And at the end, I'm going to come back to the question, what is your attitude towards the law? What place do you give the law in your life? Now, let me start with the question, why the law then? And the law was added to the promise in order that man might become aware of the infinite gap between himself and his holy creator, between sinful man and a holy God who made him. And as understanding of the law was added, it was inevitable that sin would increase. We read last week, Romans 5.20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You see, when we know the law, we are driven by that knowledge to transgress that law. The minute our Father says no, we say what? Yes. The minute our mother forbids us, we reach out to grab it again. The thing forbidden is the thing that entices. Why? Because as the law of God is added, through the law, man comes to despair of himself, of his own effort, and of his own ability to please God. Instead, he is led to put his hope not in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Through the instruction of the law, man becomes aware of the exact nature of God's righteousness. He sees his own sin clearly, and he is driven deeper into that sin so that he trembles before the holy God, knowing there is no hope for him. And there, he is brought to the point, to the precise point, of choosing between his own righteousness or the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, that the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so the law of God would be contrary to God's promise if the law was intended to be another parallel and competing path to the path of righteousness, the righteousness of faith. In other words, if there were a path other than through Jesus Christ, that path would compete with Christ. The point of the law is not to give to Jewish people or to other people who are in moralistic churches another path that if they never quite get it about faith in Jesus Christ, they can follow that path and, and their good intentions will lead them to heaven. No. Uh, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, whether we're slave or free, whether we're Jew or Greek, whether we're male or female, there is only one path. There is not a competing path of works righteousness to the righteousness of faith. There is only one path, and it lies through Jesus Christ. And we have to be careful about this today, because there's such pressure after the Holocaust for us to have tender hearts towards Jews. And for us to think that maybe God does have another path, because after all, isn't it wonderful that particularly Orthodox Jews are so particular to obey the law of God? And, and wouldn't God reward them for this, this good intent because there are so many people in the world who have no awareness of the law of God and, and isn't God in some sense beholden to them for following what little revelation they've actually believed in, namely the Old Testament law? And, and wouldn't that be a good way to show that we are post-Holocaust sensitive, tender Westerners and that we aren't anti-Semitic? And so you have this huge movement in the church today to go back 
and to deny the very thing that Paul's saying here in Galatians, namely, there is one way to God, and that lies through his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is a Jew, and Jesus Christ gives us the whole Old Testament in fulfillment. There is no way to be faithful to the Old Testament without being faithful to Jesus Christ. All right? Sensitivity and kindness and compassion can't whoop up on truth. It just is not, it's American, it's Western, it's modern, it's postmodern, but it isn't biblical. And you're going to have this all the time. It's been a fascinating thing to see that in the midst of a living demonstration of the consequences of sexual immorality, namely millions of deaths and growing all the time, all right? Precisely at that time, that very sexual immorality is normalized, becomes standardized, becomes a force of law in our culture. Now, what's going on there? Again, it is the wrong-headedness of a misapplied compassion. You come to the point where you see that the sin is leading to death and you have a choice. Your choice is to repent or your choice is to make that sin a principle and to damn God forever giving you the consequences of your sin. And then to require the world to confirm the very behavior that God has given you is a warning that sin will lead to death. You see, compassion can drive you one of two ways. It can drive you into shaking your fist at heaven and at the God who made it and at the God who has established, be not deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The man who sows to his sinful nature from his sinful nature will reap destruction. And to say, it's not fair, God. And furthermore, that our laws would institute a living manifestation, a living demonstration, a living picture of God's character at this point is not fair. And so you seek to kill God and to kill every vestige of his character that has been encoded in the laws of our, of, of our world. Or the other side is to say it is God's compassion that we reap the consequences of our sin, that we be placed under the tutor of the law so that we may be driven to despair of ourselves and go to Jesus. Now, there's two ways, you know. Let's say, for instance, that you're not somebody looking at the Jews, but you are a Jew yourself. There are two ways. One way is for Jews coming out of the Holocaust, having parents who suffered in the concentration camps, to shake their fist at the living God and at his son, Jesus Christ, and to say a reasonable God would honor us for keeping the Old Testament law and not demand that we fall on our knees in front of his son. And then demand that Christians shut up when we talk about Jesus Christ because it is what? Genocide. You see? It wipes out the ethnic nature of their community. Because what? You can't be a Jew and be a Christian, right? The other is what? My dear friend Bob Kapowitz has done and is pleading with his father to do. And that is to kiss the sun. All right, I'm quoting from Psalms, right? To kiss the sun, because if you don't kiss the sun, the father is going to destroy you. And that's Old Testament. Okay? So don't be misled by compassion. Compassion is a seductive thing in a feminized culture. And it will lead you to make many wrong judgments. The way to help someone who is dying because of their sin is not to shake your fist at God with them and to say, don't worry, God has a separate path for you as a Jew, for you as someone who's sexually immoral, 
you, you don't need to confess your sins. Remember, it's the gift of God that we're able to confess our sins. And you see, that's what I meant, where all over the world, all across time, all through all races and ethnic groups, we're one in Christ because all of us have fallen uh, in an unconditional surrender beneath the cross and have confessed our sins. And we've also confessed that our sins are every bit as, as, as evil and as wicked as anybody else that's under the cross. You know, we don't say that uh, the Jews' rejection of Christ is worse than our rejection of uh, Christ because we say if we grew up in a Christian church and we rejected Christ, that's infinitely worse because we've been grown up being given all the goods of Scripture. Okay? Uh, We don't say that someone who commits the sin of adultery is worse than somebody who commits the sin of theft or greed or gossip. Okay? We refer to greedy people as idolaters because that's what Scripture says. So what's worse than idolatry? We don't refer to somebody that has AIDS as being worse than someone who has spent their life living a life of hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, if there's any sin that can be singled out in Scripture as being the worst sin, it is hypocrisy. This is why Luther says that preachers are never supposed to condemn the open and public and awful sins of the world nearly as much as they're supposed to condemn the quiet and silent but deadly hypocrisy of people in the church. And he says, because the hypocrisy of us in the church is is infinitely worse than the honest, open, and public sins of the world. All right. Compassion. Here's the deal. We're placed, it says here, under the law. We are shut up. See verse 22. Scripture has shut us up shut up not just us, but it shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So why was I talking about compassion? Because the law has been given by God as a custodian. Now, some of your Bibles say custodian uh, in these verses. Some of them in verse 23 you see kept in custody. Uh, Verse 22, shut up. It's the same word, and it's a word that could easily be, be, be said to be imprisoned. The law has imprisoned us. Now think, what is the nature of a prison? Well, a prison is a nasty place. Um, it's infinitely better in the Western world because of Christianity. All right, Christians are the ones that have raised the level of living of people who are in prison for crimes against, against society. But prison is a nasty place. Uh, Every child, as he's growing up, ought to have the privilege of being given a a picture of prison so he knows what he wants to avoid. I won't go into it, but I will tell you that there were a number of times where I would meditate on what would happen to me if I went into prison. And it kept me from doing wrong things. Um, Prison is not something that anybody falls in love with. Or am I right? Have you ever heard of or run into somebody who had been in prison for 20 years and within days of the time they were released from prison, they were back in prison? And why? Because in a very perverse way, they had come to love the prison they were in. Isn't that twisted? And yet, we are twisted. 
And so you think of the law being given as a custodian or as a prison keeper, as a jailer, as a guard, and you think, okay, what's going on here? Well, God, knowing us, knowing our pride, knowing our, our, our tendency to think better of ourselves than we ought to, to, to actually believe and to convince ourselves that we're capable of climbing and scratching and clawing our way up the hill of God's righteousness and character so that he sees us as being much higher than anybody else got. You know, you think of climbing Mount Everest, you know. Many, many people have, have never summited, you know. But, but, boy, they've gotten farther than their friends got. And they didn't die. <laughs> think of Mount McKinley, Right? And that's the way many, many people live. Uh, they look at themselves and, and they say, well, relative to so-and-so and so-and-so, I'm doing much, much better. And God will honor the fact that I did a better job than my brother or my sister or, or the person that lives next to me or works next to me. But the purpose of this custodian is not to make us able to judge how we are relative to how other people are. The purpose of this custodian is to kill us. But... How would you end up loving something that killed you? Well, by refusing to acknowledge that it has killed you. Okay? Um, Okay, I'm going to use as an illustration something that will make us uncomfortable, but listen, every, every newspaper and every television station, every broadcast, every radio program, every magazine... Every conversation you have is about it. And so why should the church be the place that doesn't talk about it? I mean, that's, that's twisted, right? Okay, homosexuality. I'll never forget back, and I've been alive a long time, when AIDS first started coming out, and there was a long article in the New Yorker about the Castro District in San Francisco. And the article was about the fact that there were people who were having multiple relationships in a single night and about the effort of the public health department in San Francisco to shut down the places where that was happening. Now, remember, the New York is not a Christian magazine, all right? And it was, the article was being written by a woman, and the woman talked about the fact that all of a sudden it was revealed through science that this was killing people. They didn't know this beforehand. They thought that the law was a tender mother. They didn't realize it was a jailkeeper. They didn't realize that the character of God has consequences in our life and that whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. But then science gave them the gift of revealing this to them. Right? Now, how do you think those who are being kept in the jail would respond to that? Well, they were given a good public health commissioner in the city of San Francisco. And the health commissioner decided that he would go to city council and that he would get city council to close down these places of business. All right? And all heck broke loose. And it was interesting to read the author as she watched all heck breaking loose in the homosexual community because you could see that she couldn't understand why they were upset that he was trying to close down these places of business. And so she went to one of her friends in the homosexual community and sat down with him and asked him questions. And the question she asked was the perfect question. She said, look, if you know that this behavior is going to kill you, you know this now. 
And if the public health commissioner is trying to discipline this behavior for your good and the good of everybody else patronizing these businesses, here is my question. Why are you fighting against him? Now, you all know San Francisco. The public health commissioner was not a Christian. The public health commissioner had no intent of, of, of putting into code, into the law, Christian standards. He was trying to protect human life. And she asked the question, and here was the answer. And I'll never forget the answer as I read. The answer of this man was this. He said, if it comes to the point, they had riots over this out there. All right. If it comes to the point where I have to choose between going back into the closet or death, that will be a difficult choice for me to make. You want the citation? I'll give it to you. Now, what is that? That's someone who has been placed under the imprisonment of the law. All right? And has been given by God the gift, through science, of seeing what that prison is. All its parameters, where its walls and boundaries and where it's bars and chains and, and how long it'll last. Everything about that prison is clear. All right? But that person is not driven by the law to come to Jesus Christ in brokenness. But rather, that person sees the choice and that person says, I love the prison. I love the jailer. And I love death. Don't ever make the mistake today of thinking that those who are dying regret it. Because the choice of a life of sin, a choice to be proud and to resist God, is a choice to love death. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. The one who sows to sinful destruction or to his sinful nature, from his sinful nature shall reap destruction. And the world does know this. Did you see the word? Look at the word. It says, in verse, excuse me a second, verse 22, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. There is not one person who has lived under the influence of the Western world and Western law, who has not been instructed as to the nature of sexual sin. Up until a few years ago, the vast majority of the states of our country had laws prescribing sodomy. And what you see here with sodomy, you see with divorce, you see with adultery, you see with fornication. It's not that all of a sudden, we have something that's horrible. It's that we have had horrible thing after horrible thing after horrible thing, which each one we have ceded to Satan. And we have said, we refuse to acknowledge publicly the destructiveness of this to the human community. It started with, what, fornication? It moved into adultery and divorce. It's now in sodomy. It's all boring. There's absolutely nothing exciting about sodomy. There was never anything exciting about fornication. I'm not saying it won't entice you. 
I mean, it is exciting, but it isn't exciting. It's just absolutely predictable. It is the way that God has placed us under the imprisonment of the law. And there are two ways of responding to that prison. One way is to make your prison a principle. (laughs) I mean, come on, you guys. You know why I'm laughing? It's so perverse. You know? Why would you make your prison into a principle? By God, I love my prison. My prison is the best prison in the world. I mean, you guys, you know, when somebody talks about their physical ability as being a different ability or a different, uh, uh, differently abled, we all understand what they're saying, that because of this, as as the news announced this last week, um, those who are blind have much better development in their brain of their verbal capacity. And so they are differently abled. Absolutely no question about that. Those who are deaf are able with their eyes to read lips where almost none of the rest of us can. Yes, they're differently abled. But not one of us is going to say that we wish we could trade places with a person that's deaf so that we could read lips. I mean, it's twisted. All right, yes. People who lack certain capacities develop other capacities. But there is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as health. There is such a thing as the character of God in moral areas. And this is a beautiful thing. And when we choose to give ourselves to the prison and to the death that that prison will lead to, instead of loving God and the character that he has revealed to us through his character, instead of loving the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then there is no hope for us. In other words, if you go on in the text and you see that it says what? It says the scripture, verse 22, has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. When you read all of this and you think and meditate on the place of the law, what you realize is that the law is a gift from God. Now, at this point, I want to remind you that this whole section is an effort to tell the Galatians that they are not to trust in good works, that they are not to trust in obedience, that they are not to think that they can earn God's acceptance. That's what the whole book of Galatians is about. The Galatians were being enticed by a group of men who were trying to say to them, yeah, trust in Jesus for his righteousness, but then add a little bit of your own, and specifically add circumcision. In fact, add the whole Old Testament law, because you're really not good enough to go to heaven until you've taken both the righteousness of Christ and your own righteousness. And so Paul is absolutely uh, torching this concept that there has to be something added to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is why he's brought to the point here where he begins our text with the statement, why the law then? Because he's been whooping up on the law. He's been saying the law doesn't have a place. It is the righteousness of Christ. But let me warn you about something. Again, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about how we're saved. He is not saying that there is no place for the law once we are saved. 
And specifically here, he's not talking about whether or not works are good for those who are in Christ. Works are bad if you think you're going to earn the acceptance of God. Works are good if you think that God has accepted you, so you will do them. (laughs) I mean, do you see this? Uh, Because there are so many of you here who are mathematicians. Um, I want to read a little bit from Luther at this point. Uh, who says this. But, but, but let me stop again and say, it's very important when you're reading someone and they say, uh, they say that uh, works will, will not get you anywhere and that they're hopeless, that you not think that they're speaking about any works ever, but that you have the ability to remember that Jesus Christ said that I was sick and you, you comforted me. I was naked and you clothed me. Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you've done it to me. All right? It's important that you remember uh, that Jesus said in John uh, 15, uh, He who abides in me and my words abide in him, the same shall bring forth what? Much fruit. It's important that you remember that it says in Ephesians chapter 2 what? Concerning good works. This is what it says in Ephesians 2. Let me read it to you. Um, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So there we destroy works. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Works are destroyed. And then what? All right. Then he says, For we are his workmanship, God's created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And as we, go through the, the, as we go through Scripture, we have to be able to to see the big picture and not just the small picture. And I think, and I don't know this, and some of you who are mathematicians will tell me afterwards I'm wrong about this, but I think one of the problems of mathematicians is that you tend to fixate on very small things. And sometimes you don't have the ability of seeing the big picture. All right? Now, maybe I'm wrong. But at least, at least I think Martin Luther agrees with me. Because listen to what he says. Listen to this. He says, the fear of God is a holy and precious thing. Now, right away, I hope you're feeling uncomfortable. Because you should be feeling uncomfortable. Because you've been raised in America where... We have been taught that the only thing to fear is what? Fear itself, itself, right? But Martin Luther, and and if you've been around Lutherans, you know that Lutherans tend to think that, that, you know, well, I won't say anything about Lutherans. Uh, (laughs) My brother David is the specialist at that. Okay. The fear of God is a holy and a precious thing, but it must not be eternal. Indeed, it ought to be always in a Christian because sin is always in him. But it must not be alone, for then it is the fear of Cain and Saul and Judas, that is to say, a servile and a desperate fear. A Christian, therefore, must vanquish fear by faith in the word of grace. All right? You shouldn't have a mantra that he repeats in his mind, you know, we're all saved by grace, we're all saved by grace, we're all saved by grace, we're all saved by grace. And as he works that mantra, as he intensively and with sweat works the mantra, 
all of a sudden fear vanishes. That's what happens so often in the church today, where people think a mantra can, can, can do the work that Jesus is supposed to do. No, it is proper that we fear, but it is also proper that that fear constantly drive us to our knees, loving Jesus, our Savior. All right? And so he says, a Christian, therefore, must vanquish fear by faith in the word of grace. He must turn away his eyes from the time of the law and look to Christ and to the faith which is to be revealed. Then his fear becomes sweet to him. I mean, do you know this? Do you know this experientially? Oh, boy. Then his fear becomes sweet to him, and it's mingled with nectar so that he no longer fears only, but begins also to love God. Has has the law of God and the fear of God that it brings become a sweet nectar to you? I mean, I really mean this. Has it become a sweet nectar to you? For if a man only looks at the law and sin and sets faith aside, he will never be able to put away fear, but at length he will fall to desperation. Thus does Paul very well distinguish between the time of law and the time of grace. And we also need to learn rightly to distinguish the time of them both, not in words, but in inward affection and love which is a very hard matter. It's very hard to know the proper place of fear and the proper place of love. For these two things are separated far asunder, and yet they are most nearly joined together in one heart. They're separated far asunder, and they're very nearly joined together in one heart. Nothing is joined more nearly together than fear and trust, than the law and the gospel, and than sin and grace. For they are so united together that one is swallowed up in the other. Therefore, there is no mathematical conjunction like unto this. (laughs) Okay, that's the mathematicians. You see, it, it doesn't work if you try it rationally. But if the law, as a schoolmaster, as a guard, as a prison keeper, drives you to your knees and you look and you see that it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And then you see the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God on the cross, pouring out his blood and saying, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. The law will drive you to the cross. The fear of God will lead you to the love of God. And you will learn the truth that in the God we fear and love embrace. It is irrational, or it is more perfectly rational than any mathematical equation. So, do you love the law of God? And do you love the blood of Christ? Our closing hymn this morning... I want you to read the words before we sing it. Thy works, not mine, O Christ, speak gladness to this heart. They tell me all is done. They bid my fear depart. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. 
Thy cross, not mine, O Christ, has borne the awful load of sins that none in heaven and earth could bear but God. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. Stand with me. Thy righteousness, O Christ, alone can cover me. No righteousness avails save that which is of thee. To whom save thee, who canst alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee.